Podcast 117 is entitled Horror Hotel, and it relates the resistance, as I see it, on the part of the human ego to its own elimination and destruction, which comes inevitably and irresistibly and total at physical death, and is really, at least in my opinion at this point, the animating negative principle of human paralysis, depression, anger, and um, stasis, as over against hope, life, fluidity, and God slash possibility. The title is drawn from a 1960 British horror film entitled Horror Hotel. It was called City of the Dead in England, and the processional music that I've just played is from Jerry Goldsmith and was entitled The Grim Reaper and was his very memorable sound to the arrival of death personified in The Grim Reaper at the conclusion of a thriller episode long ago, Boris Karloff's thriller, in which death actually came out of the canvas at William Shatner. Now, Horror Hotel taught me something recently about death. This is an old movie, and of course, I've got a personal story about it, but I'm not going to tell you the personal story because that's not important. I've seen this movie many times. It was directed by John Moxie, who later came over to this country and did some very interesting television movies, and um, written by George Baxt, a most interesting character, and someone about whom a whole podcast could be given over to whom. But this little movie, which came out in 1960, sort of illuminated something to me very recently that I had missed. It's a fog-enshrouded, very well-directed, tight, little, tough-minded, non-sentimental, and as it turns out, very Christian film about a town in Massachusetts called Whitewood that is off the beaten track and to which a young student is directed to do some research on 17th century witches. Well, these movies are, there are many of them made, and uh, they're usually double messages. They usually begin with a scene in which the church or Puritans or in Mario Bava's Black Sunday, uh, the... Romanian Orthodox Church, I mean, you name it, is uh, depicted as the hammer of the witches, the Twins of Evil, the 1971 Hammer horror film, conveys this most acerbically and anti-ecclesiastically, but inevitably Christianity is portrayed as the horrifying, cruel, sort of the devil's-ish um, director of persecution of witches, and yet the double message consists in the fact that there is a real witch, 
we always find out later, after the horrible church has done its horrible worst, that the horrible church was at one fundamental level right. It was she who murdered all the young virgins in the village or invoked a league with his satanic majesty for the prolongation of life with various men. It is inevitably the message of these movies that while the church is terrible, the evil that it was attempting to écraser is worse, in fact, than the instrument. So these are all double-message movies, perhaps a little less so in um, this particular one. Now, remember, you may say to yourself, you know, what do I need to listen to this ridiculous podcast about horror hotel? I mean, give me a break. An English black-and-white horror film from 1960? Are you out of your mind? And by the way, the movie has one almost terminal problem. It is entirely acted by English people to duplicate modern 1950s Americans. And so the accents are hilarious. Everybody is putting on an American accent. And one or two of them, one female character and one main male character in particular, are constantly regressing back to their English accents in the middle of their speeches. It's very funny. So you have to have a tremendous sense of irony. You have to love this kind of material. To wit, when this came out and I was looking at the ad as a 10-year-old in Washington, D.C. to go see it in the Washington Evening Star, which was the Bible in those days. You opened it up on a Wednesday to find out when you could see it on a Saturday. And in this case, little boys just couldn't go. They couldn't proceed behind. I mean, the, the ad was so scary that if you were 10 or 11, you really had to wait till you were 12 or get your big brother to take you because you knew you'd have to, if you had one, you'd have to run out of the theater because it, the little paper, the little ad was a drawing of sort of skeletal figures wearing those kind of robes that... Um, which um, uh, devotees wear, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like medieval monastic um, uh, hoods and these skeletal figures. And the ad, as I remember, it said something like, if you check in, just ask for doom service. And that was the, the line for Horror Hotel. Well, at, at part of me said, you know, I've got to see this if if I die in the attempt. But another part of me said, I can't possibly see this. I just, I draw the line. It's like the black sleep, that other movie of the period. I draw the line. And I did. Now, I've seen it many times, however, since to expiate the sin. And what occurred to me in light of all my pastoral experience and in light of my own self, as I saw it recently for the ninth or tenth time, Horror Hotel, with Christopher Lee and Betta St. John and a couple of other English actors, among them somebody named Valentine Dial, who you've, you'll recognize when you see him, who's fabulous. But in any event, I realized, you know, this is the key to to what's really going on with people. Why does the witch and her minions in the town of Whitewood, Massachusetts, which could be Burke Hampstead or Great Missenden Bucks, why are they doing these terrible things to people? It's in order, let me say, to prolong life. They make this bargain with Lucifer in order to have control over life, but most importantly to have control over death by the sacrifices that they make on Candlemas and um, on uh, the Witch's Sabbath, which I think is in 
No, it's not the time of year. The sacrifices they make are entirely directed towards the prolongation of their ego life, of physical life, their domination over the dim, the grim reaper. This is what it's all about. It's like the Gladys um, Cooper character in the Twilight Zone episode um, about death. I forget what it's called, but I think it was Robert Redford's, an early, um, I think it was very early Robert Redford. And the Gladys Cooper character barricades herself in her basement apartment in New York, tenement apartment, because she doesn't want death to get in. And she absolutely guarantees all um, right of entry to her uh, apartment. And no one can come in unless they, well, you'll see it. And uh, this is what people do. People are absolutely in terror. The ego, let me say, it's not the whole person. It's the ego of the person male and female, who is in terror of its uh, being um, destroyed, extirpated, uh, for its control to loosen. It will do anything. It will, it will go from hobby to hobby to hobby to thing to thing to thing to possession to possession to possession. It will go, especially when it comes to physical virility, it will go from, as it were, wife to wife or husband. Really, it's usually wife to wife to wife, girlfriend to girlfriend, in hopes of preserving. You know, Forever Young, that amazing song that ended that very um, marvelous and deep and to some extent dispiriting, if you're young, movie, The Last Waltz by Martin Scorsese about the band and the band's friends. When Bob Dylan gets up and sings with all the others, Forever Young... I understand. I understood it when I saw it, when I first saw it, when I was young, and I understand it now. Who wants to be anything but forever young? All these movies, this movie, Horror Hotel, and by the way, you can see it on YouTube in a million different ways. It's not copyrighted, and you can actually see a very, very good print of it, about four times to nothing, on four times to Sunday on uh, YouTube, or you can buy it. I can give you one of my VHS copies, but <clears throat> the power of the movie is that that's what it's really about. It's about individuals, a group of people, who are absolutely possessed by the idea of achieving some kind of delay in the advent and arrival of death, as we heard from Jerry Goldsmith earlier. And this really is what is motivating life. It's what's motivating the need to keep young. It's motivating uh, – we have a book in our house. I think it's called How Not to Look Old, and it's a fabulous book. <clears throat> it's sort of a how-to book for women about various tricks of the trade to make an older or an aging woman look younger. And these are all things we should have long ago learned because they're – now you read them and you say, why didn't anyone tell me that? I mean there are about 12 different sort of tricks regarding eye makeup and regarding – the use of this and not the use of other makeup and regarding hair color and regarding the haircut in regard to various forms of haberdashery that utterly and completely um, can, in fact, make women who are aging look younger than they are in human terms. That is absolutely true. Well, men do the same thing in a million different ways, although I must say I used to be in a diocese where many of the clergy, I mean like about 10 of the clergy, had obviously dyed their hair. These were all men in their 50s, a number of them. You could just tell they were involved in their sex lives in some way, the way everybody is, not just clergy. But the men, I'm talking about in particular, who were dyeing their hair. And you know how when they dye their hair sort of dark, like a brunette type, it always sort of ends up looking kind of um, 
red. It almost turns. It almost always turns brownish red. And you can ginger and you can cinnamon. I wanna be with a cinnamon girl. And you see this and you say, Oh God, you know this is so embarrassing. How can I shake hands with this squid who dyes his hair? I saw it so many times. But if I've seen it on clergy, you've seen it with everybody else. This tremendous need to hold on to youth that people have. It has to do with weight. It has to do with possessions. It has to do with lands. It has to do with your will. It has to do with your your relationships. It has to do with what you try to to do, your attitude towards your health. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I was looking at a reunion class, the class of 1967, in my old school. And I remember all these fellows. I always look at these, and only one year away from my own class, 68, they were had had a 40th anniversary. And quite a few fellows turned out. And it was so interesting. About eight of them looked very similar to the way they looked. The ones who didn't were inevitably uh, not the hair loss wasn't the issue because you could see the same smile. I, I, could, I mean, I knew this is class of '67. These are men now, men, but boys that I met many years with, and uh, uh, wanted their approval. And um, the ones who were who were looking, several of them looked exactly like they did then, and it was almost all a matter of weight. The ones who hadn't allowed themselves to grow fat looked good, and the ones who had looked like they were hiding away and in, in, in they were sort of trying to get out of bodies that they were uncomfortable with. It was very interesting. Well, um, what are we doing? It's the ego who will do anything to resist the having to lay it down and it to be destroyed. Now, this point was um, made, and you're going to laugh, but I have to do it because it's, it's what came out of my repeated watchings of Horror Hotel. I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you can sort of hang on, as a very downbeat middle section where they have kind of a psycho situation, that is to say... Something terrible happens in the middle that you that you can't imagine is going to happen, and it seems to change the rules of the whole plot. But then, similar to Psycho, um, something else happens, and it has a very satisfying denouement with an extraordinarily explicit Christian um, uh, intervention, Christian intervention. And it also has a, for those of you who like my podcast about psychotronic attitudes towards Episcopal and Church of England haberdashery and vesture. The portrayal of the Reverend Russell, who the English makers of this American movie cannot really make into a gone to seed, blind, Tiresias-like congregational minister. Such men scarcely exist. Never did. But they have to make him into kind of a Church of England vicar in terms of haberdashery and even the service schedule on the affiche in front of his church. And yet it's sort of like a congregational barn. I mean, they are really reaching in the depiction of the blind congregational minister. So they make him into a blind Church of England rector right down to the haberdashery. And he's known, he's either Reverend Russell, and that was the American screenwriter, but the actor keeps saying Mr. Russell. It's wonderful. You're going to like that. There's a real element of Gerald Hurd and uh, and haberdashery and irony and sort of uh, the parent trap in Horror Hotel. But as I saw this, I realized, you know, this is really the key to the whole gothic genre. Because the gothic thing is all about these monsters, these characters, doing anything to have immortality. I mean, who is Frankenstein, the Frankenstein monster? But the creation of a man who wants to make an immortal man, an indestructible man, who is created out of the body parts of deceased criminals, but with the electricity, you know, the Frankenstein was your father, but the lightning was your mother, says uh, the Bela Lugosi Igor character in Ghost of Frankenstein. Wonderful 
line. Um, he has the life force in him, keeping him alive forever, but he's composed of the body parts of people who were once dead. Now, isn't that fascinating? And who is, who is the great lord of the undead, Nosferatu? Dracula is a man who wants to live forever by means of blood and sacrifice. He has a sexual issue as well, but it's primarily a man who, for all these reasons and through all these instrumentalities, wishes to live and succeeds in living basically forever. Who the heck is the mummy? The mummy is a man who, for love, dared to incur the wrath of the gods, was buried alive, but he was then, he, he, he is always being risen from the dead by means of the uh, scroll of Toth by which Isis raised Osiris from the dead. He is a dead man who is a reanimated corpse. And uh, the new mummies emphasize that. The older mummies made him look a little better. The new mummies emphasize his desiccated and um, his terribly declined body. The older mummies cover that over with bandages. I prefer the older, but the newer are more accurate. And uh, Conan Doyle, I think, in Lot 46 meant to see it, but thats I don't want to go off on any kind of tangents. All these creatures, in some form or another, are trying to prolong their life. That even goes for the Phantom of the Opera. Now, the one that's not is the character that sort of ended the whole universal horror cycle, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And by the way, even the Wolfman basically lives forever, as I'll remind you from House of Frankenstein, where he lives encased in ice, and House of Dracula, where he lives encased in mud. Um, even the, uh, uh, the, the, the all of uh, these characters, with the one exception of the more natural creature from the Pleistocene age, whom evolution has left behind in some sort of lost worldy pond in southern Central America or someplace like Belize or something, that is different because you can kill him easily. You can't find him, but if you can find him, you can kill him because he's he's just a, a refugee from the from the Jurassic Park. He exists. He's not supernatural. And as soon as you put science into the equation, you lose the whole occult area, which is actually close to what many human beings want to do. They want to live forever. And they, they do it in normal ways. They do it in all the ways we know about. But um, what, what did we hear about the New Yorker cartoon about the college graduate who, from 19, uh, you know, 2008, who said, you know, um, my goal uh, is to be uh, cryogenically preserved until the job market improves. Well, um, these uh, characters in this gothic fiction, it's all about the prolongation of life, and so is your life. And I want to talk about that. Everything we're doing is some form of resistance, and all the great religions, and I say all of them, I particularly emphasize Christianity because it's my religion, and because it does uh, so um, uncompromisingly with the death and resurrection of its central figure, make this into a charter a core constituent of of what it is to live, which is to lay down physical life in the uh, con uh, in the the the, the consubstantiative hope of I made that up of uh, of new life. The seed falls into the ground, and unless it dies, it cannot live. Um, and the power of the death which it must have. I think I told you about a great resistance to this that I saw in someone I knew who was a politician, very, very successful, but ground level politician, sort of behind the scenes sort of person. The new equivalent of a ward boss who in a far western state was the most powerful Democratic Party uh, politician of the state and was a kingmaker for anyone who wanted power in the state of whatever this is, including presidential candidates every four years. And, uh, he was just the most engaged in life person you've ever met, and then he was given a diagnosis that he had very little time to live because of pancreatic cancer or something like that. And 
just overnight, he he closed the the door to his house, you might say, pulled down the shades, and absolutely and completely wouldn't see anybody and just died with his wife and his children, yes. But he, he, he couldn't, there was no transition from total fatuous, uh, no, 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 total interest and, fascina- interest and fascination with power and absolute and complete withdrawal from all engagement. And, of course, it shocked everybody. What that means is he was not prepared. Are you, look, seriously, uh, what is the job of a clergyman? The job of a clergyman is to help people be prepared for death so it doesn't catch you unawares. I always talk about that um, graveyard inscription in Saint, across from St. Philip's Church down in Charleston, SC, where um, you, you, someone there, it says he had the good fortune, someone, some old bird who's buried in the little cemetery directly opposite the main portico of St. Philip's Church. And um, it says, uh, so-and-so, who had the good fortune not to be caught by death unawares. In other words, he was prepared for death. Fortunately, Scrooge becomes prepared for death through his visitation on Christmas Eve. And um, it is something that we really need to do. We really need to be prepared for our own uh, death. We need to lose hold. I was talking to people in um, a part of the world that I love very dearly, what's often called a wee corner of Europe, and uh, someone said, well, you know, the um, our grandparents, our ancestors' motto was, what we will have we shall hold, as a reference to land and property in this wee corner of Europe. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's true as far as it goes. I understand that. What we will have, what we have, we shall hold. But we hold nothing. We hold nothing. And we ultimately, we will do far better holding if we know that we will lose it, because we will lose it. Death is the end. And don't try to put it, you know, you can read all the all the books you want. I, I do about how to, you know, my weight loss, Lord knows, all this weight that I've lost. It's all an attempt to preserve something, you know, the wing thing. You, it, but the wing thing cannot be preserved. Uh, you're the bones. Uh, it's like that scene from The War of the Worlds. It's the bones. And the bones themselves fall to dust in, what, two, three years under the old covenant law. and uh, And then they may hold on for a while. The great mystery of life, the great enemy of real life, is the defense of the ego against its own dissolution, which needs to be understood immediately, as I said in those Ludger Tom Ring paintings. It needs to be understood now. And I've got, I bought a big uh, skull somewhere recently. I was able to procure a human skull. It was easy to do. It was um, at a shop where they, it's probably made of plastic. I suspect it is. But it was sold to me as some skull from... I don't know what in the world. I assume it was the skull of the Marquis de Sade. By the way, remember the word irony. All this is not true, but I am looking at a very, very large skull. I'm sure now that I touch it, it's plastic. But nevertheless, I'm holding on to it together with these kneecaps of mine and these new sort of ribs that I can feel. Poor Mary. You know, these hips that are the Andersonville side of me. But I'm nevertheless keenly aware of how important it is to be prepared for that which we have to lay down. Lay your burden down. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, because tomorrow you're going to die. Now, this is very, very marvelous. And Horror Hotel shows really very moralistically, but with great power, actually, with its wonderful direction and mise-en-scene and simply the way the actors uh, relate and the climactic confrontation. It is really about the... um, the absolute failure, the titanic failure of people's um, efforts to prolong the life of the ego. Please don't. I mean, 
um, please don't be one of those people who scans the obituaries and gives thanks if the if you've lasted longer than the poor person who died or or gets sort of new juice if they see that you're 83 and the person that died was 91. Uh, please don't be one of those people. Um, it, it's a it's a disaster. Um, the sooner we lay it down and sort of stop you know, all this prolongation, the more actively we're going to actually find that our life is prolonged. That is, that is really the, that real life is prolonged. And I conclude this podcast with a lovely little ditty by Douglas Gamley. Now, Douglas Gamley wrote a number of scores for, um, amicus horror films and i think the first one that i know of that he did i'm sure he did others but the first one that i'm aware of that i ever heard was for horror hotel <clears throat> and this is the original score very short of the high notes of uh horror hotel nay city of the dead and in it we hear uh a you might say it a minor um uh, choral work of uh, the other side and then the introduction of the famous day of wrath Canon and Fugue, which ends up in the um, the uh, triumph of the wrath of God or the judgment of God on the other side, and it's very well done and very weird, and really should send you scurrying to see this amazing little film. But hang on till the end, hang on till the end, entitled Horror Hotel. Thank you very much.